Hello, and welcome to Judgment Calls. I'm David Levy, director of the Bolch Judicial Institute at Duke Law School. My guest today is Justice Dikang Mozaneki, the former Deputy Chief Justice of the Constitutional Court of South Africa. At the age of 15, Justice Mozaneki was arrested for anti-apartheid activity. He was imprisoned for 10 long years at Robben Island alongside Nelson Mandela and other future leaders of South Africa. While in prison, he earned an undergraduate degree and a law degree. And when he was freed, he became a leading lawyer in South Africa, representing a broad range of clients, including political prisoners and opponents of apartheid. As apartheid ended, Justice Mozaneki helped draft South Africa's interim constitution and helped to oversee the country's first democratic elections. He became a justice of the new constitutional court in 2002 and was named the deputy chief justice in 2005. He retired from the court in 2016. Justice Mozaneki is the 2020 recipient of the Bolch Prize for the Rule of Law, which recognizes extraordinary dedication to the rule of law. I can think of no one more deserving of this honor. What a privilege and a pleasure it is to welcome you here today, Justice Mozaniki. <clears throat> Professor Levy, it's a total, total privilege to be here, to be a Rubinstein Fellow, and indeed to be a recipient of the Bolsch Prize. You have published a marvelous memoir one of the themes is evident in the book's title, My Own Liberator. I've read the book, and it's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. Can you explain the title? Yes, indeed. The core theme of the, the book is individual agency as well as collective agency. And that agency, I want to suggest, extends to the steps that one would take to liberate oneself from whatever oppression one might encounter in one's life. In my case, the oppression was apartheid and colonialism, and this book really celebrates the obligation to free oneself from oppression and to join hands with others to achieve a just society. You say at, at different times... You can't offload this to someone else. In other words, this is something that can't be done for you, but you have to do for yourself ultimately. Indeed. You, as I often say, you cannot outsource it to, to another. If, if you find yourself in an oppressive situation, and this was now political and socioeconomic oppression, and the view I took and the view that many of my comrades took was that we ought to organize ourselves to fight the injustice of apartheid, and it's something that you can't give away. You, you, you can't leave it to others. Otherwise, it will just never get done. It's very tempting to begin your story at age 15 when you were imprisoned in, in, in Robben Island for the next 10 years. But as you uh, structure the book... There's a whole family history before that, and could you talk about that a bit? Because you have a very interesting and, uh, one might say, successful family. Yes, thank you. I mean, as you saw, it was important for me to understand my own roots. One of the things that 
oppression does is to try and obliterate your humanity as though you have no origins, you have no connectivity, you have no kings, men and women, and therefore you have no past worth talking about. And I sought just to, to make the point that I can recall and that my forebears right back to the 1800s, the end of the 1700s. And with research, I came to find out who they were, and which draws me back to my grandfather, having recited who his forebears were, who became a teacher and later a minister of religion, and who gave all of his children access to a college at which they qualified, and some of them moved on to university. So I describe how my grandmother and father were seminal figures in putting together our family. And that's how I was born into a family of a mother was a teacher, father was a teacher, and who had siblings who by and large had had the benefit of, of education. And for my part, it was obvious, there's the only thing I could do is to work hard and acquire decent education. This uh, combination of uh, Methodism, because your, your grandfather was a Methodist minister, mm-hmm. and education is so appropriate because here we are at Duke, which is one of the – whose origins were as a Methodist university and was part of that impulse in the United States. There are other, other universities here as well. Indeed, it's, it's, it's a privilege to be at Duke. I had no idea that it's so beautiful, a place and compass. And I was even more flattered when I was told, well, the chapel was really um, part of, you know, the entrepreneurship, religious entrepreneurship of Methodists who, who, who had a hand in the early parts of Duke. So it's quite a privilege to be here. And I acknowledge, um, without being Bible-clapping, the, the formative role that Methodism played in my life. I was at a Methodist boarding school. I had Methodist teachers. And um, yes, in the book, I do, I do say that and acknowledge that. So all of this was interrupted when you were arrested in your high school years and sent to prison, which is... Not an experience uh, that most of our leading judicial officers have have had uh, for 10, 10 years, which is a very long time. You were in a in a political prison. Can you describe that for us? You do, you do so well in the book. It's, it's so multifaceted. Mm. Thank you. I, I had no option because Robin Island, a little island, seven miles, I think, by three, four miles, a tiny island, just off Cape Town. Um, its location reminds me much of Alcatraz in relation to San Francisco for, for the American audience. And it was always a destination for political descendants. So when we got there, we we're continuing a long tradition of colonial powers imprisoning people on Robben Island. And there we were with the uprising of the 1960s in South Africa, all taken to Robben Island and became a blessing because it always was and it was a political prison 
or prison for political prisoners. And as you've heard me say it a good few times, that gave us space to, um, to regroup, to reassure each other that we are part of a just struggle and to reassure each other that we are our own liberators. And that was a little mishap. If you get arrested, obviously, you're going to continue with your, the work to depose a government. But we vowed that when we left, we'll do that. We'll continue to do that. But we did more imp- other more important things. We studied. And we debated the features of a just society. What are the elements that would do well if you want to reconstruct apartheid into an open, democratic, non-racial, and non-sexist society, what instruments do we require? Then we didn't quite know that we're preparing to write an incredible constitution in time. But yes, Robben Island was a became a university. And I always remind people that Nelson Mandela was there for 27 years, almost three decades. And seeing in that light, my one decade just pales into insignificance because I wouldn't have survived as long as he did. But he did and came out to be our leader. You took a number of undergraduate degrees while you were imprisoned on on Robben Island, and one of them was in law. Why? In my second book, I speculate about what I would have done, what I would have been had I not gone to prison. And I thought probably I would have become a doctor. My science marks and grades were quite sparkling. They were quite good. But once I was on Robben Island, I knew that I must paid put the idea of being a scientist or a doctor or advancing the sciences. And it's easier to study long distance and after hours law than it would be any of the sciences. So I started off by studying political science and English literature. I always liked reading from childhood, so it came near naturally that I'd have a major, a three-year major in English, English literature and political science. I was a political prisoner. And I wanted to know what all these philosophers of many years, starting from Aristotle and Plato and St. Aquinas and all of the, the thinkers throughout the ages, right to the more more recent thinkers like Jeremy Bentham. And, and so I wanted to know what they had said about the nature of society. And that became quite natural that I'd do a BA degree in English and political science. Law, why? Well, the decision was to go and fight the system. And I thought, one, I wouldn't get a job easily if I had to work for somebody else. Two, law would be a, a very valuable instrument to undo apartheid, to expose its legal deficiencies, and uh, and that's what I chose to do. So that was a that was a big decision for you, and it may not be clear to our listeners that many of your 
comrades uh, who left Robben Island, they actually left the country and became freedom fighters elsewhere, um, taking up arms. And you decided to go this diff- different route. Um, and you and I have discussed this. You, you, you use the rule of law against the rule by law. And maybe you could talk about that because it's so interesting. Yes. <clears throat> the option was to, as you've rightly pointed out, to go into exile and fight from the borders inward and plant bombs and and do a number of things that insurgents do against an unjust regime. The other was the one that I took was to become an internal uh, insurgent, if you like. And I had to choose the means. And the means I chose was to, was lawyering. And you must ask immediately, as you have just done, Professor Levy, how do you become a lawyer in a society which opted to use the law to oppress and to exclude others in the way that apartheid did? And my selection was apartheid is really constructed at the foot of the law, but law that is unjust and law that is incapable of bringing or generating a just society. My duty was to find the gaps, the loopholes, the procedural lapses, to try and argue and give interpretation to words that would favor and give release to the victims of apartheid. And in a number of cases, and as I said earlier, I wasn't alone, where a brigade of progressive lawyers who wanted to show apartheid for what it is. So every case, even if the defendant gets convicted and gets piles of years in prison, it would have been an event in itself, an organizing event. So there are two parts to it. The one is to bring relief by exploiting the inevitable imperfections of a regime like that where the law tries to cover everything, but it can't, and it never does. And the other part was to use it as a platform to articulate a different society. So often I would stand up and argue, Your Honor, or my Lord, or my Lady, this is a draconian law. It imposes the following hardships on the people who are before you, the defendants. And in fact, they had no option but to act in a particular way because the law did not create such an option. So every time you argued, opening argument, closing argument, you actually had an opportunity to pillory the system to show just how unjust and unfair it is. And, and that was part of the joy. And you tell, as you do it, it's an open court, you tell the whole world and you use the court to organize even more people to resist and discredit apartheid. You had to fight your way into the bar. And this whole aspect of the apartheid regime is is uh, fascinating because it shows, I think, what you call the schizophrenia of the ruling elite. Yes, indeed. They hoped to be seen as civilized, considerate, and reasonable women and men. The predominantly men, apartheid was run mainly by men. 
because they also were so patriarchal towards their own women. But they always hoped that they would be seen with kind eyes for being people who care for the law. And often when you studied law, for instance, I learned that quite early in my studies, they would recall, for instance, Roman jurists like Justinius, like they would call up Roman, excuse me, emperors who had codified that part of the law. So they had admiration for Roman law and Roman Dutch law. You remember, it was introduced into Holland and was annotated by people like Grotius and uh, all of those thinkers in Holland in the 16th and 17th century. So they saw themselves as, they saw those as their ancestors and that they were the progeny of those legal thinkers. So they would pretend that they actually are having a rule of law when it was ruled by law. So every time you pointed to an injustice, you pointed to ineptness, you pointed to unreasonableness, you actually caused considerable embarrassment to that. And as you know, I told you about my admission. They argued to the Law Society or the Bar Council Association said he can't be admitted. He's an ex-corn. He's a formerly convicted person. He has been in prison for 10 years. So he can't be admitted to the bar. And my argument was that, no, I know who should have been in prison, not me. But frankly, I did not commit any act of dishonesty, unfaithfulness. I was convicted for expressing a view about what an open, just, and democratic society should look like. That, if that is a crime, it's still a crime today, but it says nothing about moral turpitude, about my integrity. It, it stays intact. At best, Your Honor, it could be said we have a different view of the world, but it can't be said I'm a dishonorable man. I've got to admit it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think they wanted to take that back <laughs> later? I think that they, they had the argument and they knew that apartheid was an unjust system. You uh, first came under Nelson Mandela's influence when you were in Robben Island. He was quite a bit older than you. Uh, you had a wonderful relationship with him and and Mrs. Mandela. Could you talk about that? There's some there's some well, sort of interesting uh, <laughs> twists and turns in that relationship. Oh, yeah. When Mrs. Mandela was outside and her husband was inside in prison, she had several occasions where she required legal protection and defense. Those who know her would know that she was an activist and a militant one at that. And as I've described her, very respectful in other respects. She was near fearless. And she had a husband, of course, sitting in prison. And she was bringing up her small children. She was Nelson Mandela's second wife. And she was very young when Nelson Mandela went to prison. And the two children she had to bring up alone. So that part often gets forgotten. And I was close to it and defending her. So I was also alive to her personal burden. The media often 
wanted to dismiss her as a volatile human being and so on, but really conservative people. But the truth is she carried quite a burden. And her husband in prison for 27 years, and you're a young bride. She had some challenges. So he, Nelson Mandela, asked me to take up cases for her. One such example would be the Stompy trial where Mrs. Mandela was accused of having had a hand in capturing and being complicit in the murder of a small, a young boy. And George Bezos and I were counsel in the matter. And we had to fight to keep her out of jail, which we, we succeeded to do. At the express request of Nelson Mandela. So yes, over the years, whilst in prison and immediately after he came out, there was a considerable closeness that developed between us. And he seemed to have a view that I'd be a good troubleshooter. If there's something to be done, there's somebody who can do it. As you know, historically, he invited me several times to come in, do big things that he wanted to, or boulders that had to be rolled out of the way. He would invite me to do that, ending with me being, of course, the executor in his deceased estate. He, I think at his request, represented Mrs. Mandela in their divorce proceedings. Oh, yes. I'm not sure. If it's at his request, at that time, he may have wanted me to appear for him. (laughs) But uh, because then I was a fairly established lawyer and I had come into my own. I was punching with the big boys and girls. So it is Mrs. Mandela who reminded me that I was her counsel and not her husband's counsel. And the fact that he's now president was not enough for me to switch allegiances. And, And I appeared for her. And that might have been a little bit awkward given the um, eminence and uh, how revered he was by you and others. And he was already president of South Africa at the time. So it was quite awkward indeed. Well, he had uh, a number of big roles for you uh, that he, he wanted you to take on. You were a constitution writer. It was I don't know if that was at his specific request. And you also oversaw the first democratic elections. And we know from our experience with contested elections that they often don't go down all that easily. So let, let us talk about those two things. They're, they're, they're both very, very big um, experiences, the first being the drafting of an interim constitution. How did you become involved in that? Oh, yeah. Um, there was a need to put together a team of eight people would be responsible for writing the interim constitution. Think about it, conflict, both internal and external. Nelson Mandela gets released from prison. We start to have negotiations to terminate the apartheid system and introduce a democratic one. And that would do only if we actually have a democratic constitution. So it was necessary to write a democratic Constitution that would provide for elections, first elections ever, because under apartheid, elections were always racist and exclusionary. So it was necessary to write up an interim, and the parties negotiating would cut deals and agree 
and we would be tasked with the duty of writing the the formal interim constitution. And yes, I was invited onto the committee by, by Nelson Mandela. And I was one of the few very senior African lawyers who had gone through the mill and the drill, you know, who had been there right through the struggle and who therefore would have had the benefit of legal training, but also training within the struggle and, and patriotism and loyalty towards the democratic cause. So it was not a difficult pick to make. Um, it took us a good six months to nearly a year writing out the interim constitution. So that was a massive privilege. Think about it. Starting off, as I often say, as a slave and working your way through imprisonment and all of that, ending up on top of the pile of lawyers and then being invited to come and write a new constitution for your country. And I, I recognize that to be an enormous privilege. It's not often that in the same struggle, you start from the one end and move through the full gamut, you know, the full scale of, of movement. And when he invited me to do that, it was, it, was, it was a very big privilege. And by that time, you were one of the, you, you'll be modest, but you were one of the top lawyers in the, in the, in the country. I think any lawyer, though, uh, asked to become one of the drafters of a constitution would feel the, the weight of history and uh, <laughs> a future judgment, perhaps. Yes. Uh, so it is, it's a very great honor. How would you um, prepare yourself as you worked through this task? Uh, did you look at other constitutions? Did you consult with uh, constitutional scholars from other lands? I mean, how, how would one go about this? Yes, there are a variety of things that we did. All of us were green to writing constitution. We had one constitution, which was the apartheid constitution, and that was not a place to look at. That's exactly where we, we, we would have to turn our backs on. And therefore, we, we had a number of things. One of these was to be to have initial seminars on the kind of just society we have in mind. Two, there were a lot of inputs from political actors who were yet, of course, to go to elections and be tested. Their views about how South Africa should look like. Let me give you an example. There was a big debate about federalism and unitarism. Are we having a federal state, a la America or Switzerland? I'm just thinking about the big federations of the world or Germany in part, which is a mixed system. Are we having a unitary state as the United Kingdom generally? Or is it a confederacy? So it, it opened up time to learn a lot about structures of, uh, of states. Two, we looked around the world. I remember compendiums of complete uh, constitutions of the world. There are such collections where you actually can, and it was before the days when the web was so powerful and you could find anything on the web. So you would have compendiums of different uh, constitutions and that's when I realized that they actually are quite varied and many go very limping because they don't have everything that you need. We needed to write everything down. We're coming out of a horrible regime and people 
wanted a what we call a never never again constitution where none of these defects and fault lines of society would be repeated. We went to look the certain place we looked we looked at India, we looked at Canada, we looked at the US, we looked at a number of countries on the African continent, Ghana, Nigeria, the, the bigger ones, the more established ones, Botswana. <clears throat> we looked at Eastern Europe, and most of them were just trying to pull out of the Russian orbit, you know, like Romania and Latvia and Lithuania and those uh, Belarus and so on. So they themselves had were not developed democracies because the common cause was that we wanted to be a democracy, open democracy. So having looked around, then there was a time then to sit down and make difficult decisions. But it's fascinating and a real privilege, starting from what will be the name of this country? And that was the first debate. This is how open-ended it was. We could have called it anything. In fact, there were three or four suggestions on the table. South Africa prevailed. I would have called it something else, (laughs) (laughs) which I won't tell you now. But, I mean, South Africa prevailed. When you start a new, you want to have a new name. You know what I mean? You don't want to just keep your name, but somehow. The Lord that wanted the name kept won. But having said that, it was a systematic, slow process. Will we have parliamentary sovereignty or will we have constitutional sovereignty or constitutional supremacy? If so, what kind of judicial review? Should there be judicial review? And if so, who, by whom should the review be done? So you can see that it was a slow, brood process of really thinking afresh if you like, brick by brick, stone by stone, what our society would look like. A big privilege. So you you come through that experience and you're a busy lawyer and you steal a few days to go on vacation with your family and what happens? Yeah, I mean, just at the end of the, the grueling writing, Kabanina, my wife and I and, and our kids ran into the, into the bush. As you know, we have wonderful wildlife parks in South Africa. And we went to the Kruger National Park. And we thought we'd all gone until, as I described in the book, a ranger came to me with a walkie-talkie and said, excuse me, sir, there's somebody who wants to talk to you. And I said, how could anybody know I'm here? I mean, I was quite... And he said, say, I think you want to take the call. (laughs) I said, why would I want to take... He said... Say, this is Mr. Mandela. And of course... You took the call. I wanted to take the call. (laughs) (laughs) And he had done all sorts of things connected, until he connected on a radio, walkie-talkie, and to me. I mean, it was all complicated stuff, but there it was. And he said to me, I think you must pack your bags. Where is your lovely wife? Uh, Tell her, I'm asking. He's really commanding. Uh, you people to come to Cape Town by tomorrow. We're having a meeting with Mr. Ditlak and Judge Krichler. The four of us have to meet tomorrow to talk about something very important. I have another assignment for you. There it was. There it was. On my way, take my kids out and get them out of the water. Come on, Shab, we've got to go. And then there we were on the airplane down to Cape Town because indeed there was a meeting at Tainhase the presidential like the White House in Cape Town. 
And F.W.D. Clark was there, Mr. Mandela, and Johan Krichler and myself. He was going to be the chair of the, he was a sitting judge in the apartheid regime, Johan Krichler. And I was senior counsel, as I say, I wasn't a judge yet. And we were the team that was going to lead the elections. And I was Mr. Mandela's pick, and he was F.W.D. Clark's pick, who would lead the elections. Now, a bigger assignment you don't get. A so, bigger call by history you don't, you don't run into. Because that first election is so important to establishing the, the legitimacy of the, of the government. Absolutely. Starting with who would run it. People would want to know who the heck are they. Why would we have to heed them and so on. So that's an enormous task. Suffice it to say we pulled it off. And it was a glorious moment to be able to say, and the winner is Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress. So it was, it was a remarkable moment. None of us had run elections before. And people who don't have accepted elections run by the past government, not by any means. It needed to be independent arbiters who are and seem to be so. And I tell a little bit about all the travails of the elections in the book. <clears throat> but in the end, <clears throat> we, we managed to pull it off. And people felt it was, it was fair and accurate. Yes. And that's what, what mattered. Yes. And then you, you took a, a time in, in business. You had a very impressive business career for a number of years, um, which will defer to another time. And things were going quite well for you there. You were very uh, interested in what you were doing and very good at it, uh, the development of this new company. And it was uh, uh, a uh, telecommunications company. And so that's, it was very interesting to you as a person of the future. And uh, you got recruited to um, go on the bench. Tell us about that. Yes. Uh, I was having fun, and I'd made up my mind. Freedom meant going out, not lawyering again for poor people, <laughs> and not lawyering for the struggle. And we had freedom, and we had just established it. We had to make it a reality. And I thought I'd given my best shots, you know, and therefore I, I was entitled. And I was in my 40s. Early 40s. So I was, I thought I was strong and ready to take on the world. And the world was my oyster. And having gained some level of noticeability, I thought I'd be able to make transactions and deals and enter the economy. And perhaps let me start with Tabumbeki, who became president, the second president of the Nelson Mandela. He was very anxious to have a representative judiciary. One of the challenges of transition, you can have a transition and retain all of those judges. In my second book, I talk about the wrestling that happened at that time. You could not wake up and fire all the judges because you had no substitutes. One of the ironies of the transition. Um, 
And we wrote in the Constitution that everybody holds judicial office. So I'll continue to do so. As if appointed on the same terms and conditions as before the induction of a new Constitution. So we preserved continuity because we had not trained enough people to become judges on day one. So it really meant you needed your country, women and men, to hold fort and to continue doing their work. It also was good for cohesion, besides the fact that you, you could not fire them day one and not bring the courts to a standstill. So there are two sides to it. We needed continuity. The courts must continue to work. But at the same time, we needed space to train newer and other people to come and assume roles as judges. But my scene was that I was already having practiced for all the years and as a senior counsel, and I was an obvious judge material. So I was hard-pressed to go and accept an appointment. I resisted and resisted, and until, of course, as you know, the f- president at the time, Tabombeki, then Arthur Chaskelson, who became our chief justice and was chief justice then, and he wanted a succession plan. He wanted somebody like me and others, like Justice Nobo, Justice Jakub, Justice Van Vestesen, to come onto the court as sort of the second wave of judges, and who'd be more representative and more diverse. Because the first lot were predominantly white males, predictably. That was the only reservoir, the only pool. And when I resisted Arthur Chaskelson having fun, he asked Mr. Mandela to ah, give me a call. That was dirty. <laughs> <laughs> underhanded. It was underhanded. <laughs> and he was chief and he wanted, you know, younger lawyers that he thought were the, And remember, we had written the Constitution together. The interim constitution, Arthur Chaskelson, I succumbed when he said, your people need you. Now, those are heavy words to come from an old man and a leader. Your people, your people need you. So I succumbed to resign from all the corporate positions to take a massive drop in my income and, and otherwise from a corporate world to a judge. So many judges can identify with that. It's, it's, of course, a great honor, and you were up to the challenge. It's a 15-year term. You eventually became the deputy chief justice and acting chief justice and should have been the chief justice. Maybe we'll talk about that in a moment. But what stands out uh, for you uh, during that time? Was it a very fulfilling time for you on the court, and, and why? You know, when I look back, I couldn't have asked for better. Much as I was taken out of the corporate world, kicking and screaming, I was having fun. There's a new South Africa that's open. Possibilities were endless. Um, the bit of hard work and brain, you know, you'd have gone very, very far. I don't know if I've been, I would have been happier if I'd made more money. Than, more, you know, than the opinions that I had opportunity to write. The building blocks that I helped to put up there for a new, fresh uh, jurisprudence, just the joy of getting more and more 
people around the world and courts and acknowledging that we are new, but we're on the right track. And that, of course, was demonstrated by more and more and more judges around the world visiting our courts. And occasionally we'll get flattered in jurisdictions where they would cite our opinions. A young court as we were. And we got visitors. An American audience would know this. We got Senator Barack Obama, who in time became the president. He was not then. And, but he found it and he had come to know that the constitutional court where, we, where I worked was a place to go to. And when he became president, we were suitably flattered, of course. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg came and became a justice in residence. And for a good two or three weeks, she was there. She was holed up in our court and with office space and library and very much living around us um, and being very much part of us in our tea rooms and so on and the common room. How, how privileged could you be? Justice Stephen Breyer came out to visit us and so on. So you're beginning to be that court which was to go to. And I had the privilege of writing to my heart's content on just about every issue that confronted the court. And that would have percolated from the bottom, from all the courts, through the appellate court until it came to the highest court in the land. And, of course, the honor that came with it, and, of course, the regard and recognition and respect. I don't think any money would give you any of those things. Um, so, yes, it was such a privilege. And I began to get invitations from around law schools, not only in the U.S., but other law schools around the world, who would have wanted to, to come and visit for varying periods. So we're ourselves surprised. That is true of Richard Goldstone. It's true of Albie Sachs. It's true of Edwin Cameron or Yvonne Mokoro or Johan. So our judges were sought after. Very distinguished group. Yes, indeed. We're lucky. And um, went around the world to go and do a variety of things at a conference or half a semester or a full semester and so on sharing what we are doing as, as a judicial call. Were you ever tempted as a, as a draftsperson of the interim constitution to say, well, let me tell you what I had in mind when I <laughs> agreed to this, or was that, would that have been bad form? It would have been totally <laughs> bad form. <laughs> I, I thought we'd have had the same temptation, yeah. and one or two other people who, who were part of the final constitution, which was re done later on, but let me tell you, no. Somehow we, we sought to disabuse ourselves of the notion that we, we had a hand in the, in the drafting and modesty requires no less. You wrote um, some major opinions. Uh, is there anyone in particular now from this distance that stands out in your mind? I wrote probably a trilogy of opinions on what Americans would call affirmative action what we call restitutionary measures, 
and setting out and explaining our notion of substantive justice, the difference we draw between equal protection of the law or equal protection under law and remedial measures which are necessary to equalize society. And we did not have to rely on precedent because the Constitution was very explicit about the power of the state to be able to do that. But as you know, being a very experienced judge in your own right, there would be disputes about whether a measure is in fact an ameliorative measure. Is it a restitutionary measure or not? And have I been legitimately kept out? So you had a series of white litigants who'd come and say, I was improperly not promoted. And as this fall within remedial or restitutionary or affirmative action measures as permitted and authorized by the Constitution. And it followed me to write that and to sort of set out that jurisprudence, which is taught generally in our law schools. And the second one was to write around issues of corruption, executive corruption. Well, that might bring me to my penultimate question. So there was a time when you should have been appointed Chief Justice. And I know this is a story that you cover in your second book, uh, which is not out yet, but will be, um, I think, in the, later in the spring. What can you say about that? Well, plainly, I'd hoped to be Chief Justice. It would have been an incredible fairy tale. A small little boy in a depressed neighborhood rise to become the Chief Justice of a democratic South Africa. You'd have been the cherry on top. I'd be less than candid if I said I did not desire it. I did. When it was clear that I would not become, having been overlooked three times, as I often say, not once, <laughs> not twice, but three times, the opportunities to promote me to be the chief. So I became deputy chief justice for three chief justices. I was dead. It was not easy to swallow, but I did. And in fact, very quickly discovered the joy of being freed from the administrative burden of being the chief. And the joy of not having to interact with politicians and departmental offices and the budget and all of the stuff that goes to being a chief and ran into what probably was my golden era on the court because I wrote opinions from here to high heaven, which are predominantly unanimous opinions, which meant that I had some level of intellectual leadership on the court for which I was quite grateful that I had meeting of minds with my colleagues on the court. And we're blessed with that, that most of our judgments were in fact unanimous and occasionally split, but very rarely. So yes, that gave me enormous satisfaction, which continues to happen now when I go to law schools and I find that they're teaching a lot of the opinions that I had the privilege of, of penning together with my colleagues on the court. 
That's very gratifying, I think, for any judge. Well, on these podcasts, I like to end by asking the judicial officer, such an eminent person as yourself, who has been your judicial hero in your life? And I know you've probably had many, and it's hard to choose one. But if you had to choose one, or maybe two, who would they be? Let me think again. One would be South African, and perhaps another would be American, and yet another might be British. But certainly Arthur Chaskelson stands out, Chief Justice Arthur Chaskelson. He has penned a remarkable opinion on, on the death penalty and why it is inconsistent with an open democratic society striving for social justice as ours and many other opinions thereafter. So I, I see him as a giant. And I know I might be slightly prejudiced. He recruited me. He got me onto the court and basically had a lot to do with my own, own career. Certainly in the UK, Lord Denning, I've read a lot of his judgments and I fancied myself writing as clearly and thinking as clearly as, as he did. And that was closer to home being sort of a common law jurisdiction in that sense. Again, in the U.S., I won't pretend to be entirely neutral on that issue, but it's certainly Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I saw her doing it again just yesterday in the minority opinion about the shooting over the Mexican border. So yes, she would be, it should be. The justice I would admire, certainly in this jurisdiction. Well, I think the admiration flows in both directions because, as you know, she will be one of the speakers at our prize event when you are awarded the Bolch Prize. Justice Mozaneki, it has been such an honor to talk with you. Thank you for your work to advance and defend the rule of law. Your leadership and example extend far beyond the borders of South Africa. This has been another edition of Judgment Calls. I'm David Levy. Thank you for listening. Judgment Calls is produced by the Bolch Judicial Institute at Duke University. Find us online at judicialstudies.duke.edu. Thank you.